you guys probably don't know this, but I'm a really good mini golf player. Like, really good. Holes in one, whole nine yards. <clears throat> Not so good when it comes to non-mini golf. That's a completely different challenge. I don't know if you've heard this story. There was a 90-year-old man who every Tuesday and Thursday, he played golf. And he played with his, uh, his sons. Uh, but being 90, his sons weren't quite so young. And uh, kind of like us with the snow days this week, you get out of sorts and you feel like everything's kind of coming undone. His sons had sent him a message that they weren't going to be able to meet him at the golf course. And so forgetting that they had communicated that they had doctor's appointments and other responsibilities and visiting the grandkids, uh, their 90-year-old father showed up at the country club ready to play. The problem that he had was he was 90 years old. He could hit the ball, he could lick it with a stick, he just couldn't see where it went, went once it left the tee box. And so his sons would play with him to kind of spot his ball to see where it would go. And so it's a beautiful partnership. Dad's 90 and he's still swinging a club and doing it with great effectiveness. He just needs someone to help him just a little bit track where the ball goes once it gets, you know, beyond 15 feet. So he's waiting around the country club and he goes, oh man, my, I forgot my boys weren't going to be here. Well, as he kind of wanders around, kind of upset at himself for not remembering, he sees a, another man about his age. Uh, this guy's 97. He's playing golf too. And uh, it's, it's very obvious that he doesn't have a partner either. So, hey, this is like a marriage made in heaven. You know, my, my partners aren't here, but here's somebody. And he, he said, well, I, I can't play because my, my sons aren't here and they help me track the ball. And the 97-year-old says, I don't hit real well. He goes, but I've got eagle eye vision, 20-20. He goes, I'll be able to track your ball. This is great. So they go out, they get to that first tee. And sure enough, the 90-year-old guy stands up, tees it up, boom, straight. Not that he can see it, but straight as an arrow. The 97-year-old says, oh, man, that's a great shot right down the fairway. They hop in the golf cart to go. And he says, so uh, what do you need a partner for? He goes, oh, I, 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 my partners just are there to help me, and they're, they're talking. He said, man, that was a beautiful shot. And he realizes they've been driving around for a few minutes, and he goes, if it was such a beautiful shot, where is it? And the 97-year-old goes, I saw it, but I can't remember. <laughs> Sometimes there are those serendipitous things in life that make it, make it look like it's bad news, but then it's good news, and then it's bad news again. Sometimes life doesn't always turn out exactly the way you think it would. That is basically the message of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, everything is so finite. Everything passes so quickly. So what do you do when you have to deal with reality? Like there are some people... Not you, sir. If it's not you, it's probably the person sitting next to you that needs a little dose of this thing we call reality. Life doesn't always work out. Life doesn't always cooperate. And here's the deal. You can't hide because life doesn't want to cooperate with you. You can't go crawl under a rock. You can't go stick your head in the sand. So Solomon is beginning in, in Ecclesiastes 11 to bring the plane in for a landing. He's starting his approach. He ends in chapter 12. And as he's been dealing with just the vanity of living in a world that is broken, a world that is in rebellion, he closes with a couple really significant admonitions. 
How do we live in a world that is broke and doesn't always seem to play by the rules? And Solomon says, you ready for this? You work hard. You work hard. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So work hard. The challenge with that is um, that comes very naturally to some people. And it seems like some people are rather allergic to that idea of working hard. Some people just work hard all the time. Other people are like, work hard? What's that? And do I have to? There are some people that teach that the idea of work is a consequence of our rebellion against God. That is completely uh, not biblical. Adam and Eve had a responsibility. They had work to do before sin entered the world. So working, toiling, is not a consequence of the fall. It existed before the fall. It's just work was part of God's original good creation. We just ruined it, and now it's hard work. Now it's laborious. Now it's toil. Now it's labor. I want you to hear a couple passages of Scripture that talk about the Bible's take, kind of a biblical theology on work. Uh, the first is this. It's not in your, your notes. It's not going to be on the screen. Um, it's just extra. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. I'll give you the story. Um, in the first century, uh, there were believers in Thessalonica that thought Jesus' return was so imminent. Why go to work tomorrow? So this question, if you knew Jesus was coming back on Friday, what would you do this week? Some of you have probably never thought of that question ever in your life. If you knew Jesus was coming back on Friday, would you show up for work tomorrow? And Paul says, you better. You better, because you don't know. And so what happened was there were some pious believers that said, well, you know what? Digging ditches and delivering the mail and, you know, being a crossing guard, driving a school bus, it ain't worth it if Jesus is coming back. So they, they quit their job. Here's what Paul had to say that for that. Second Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, that's okay, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, just being busybodies. Such persons we command and we exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. He makes it very clear, if you don't work, you're not to eat. And this is a, a message delivered to believers who were piously waiting for Jesus to come back and he needs to provide just a wee bit of correction. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 28, a long passage. But I want you to get this because if, 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 if you get the thrust of what he's saying in Ephesians chapter 4, it makes a lot of sense for what we're going to be talking about in the remainder of our time. It really comes in three sections, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, I, Paul, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire, a greediness, for more and more. Paul's saying there is a radical difference between those who have God in their life and those that are, here he calls them Gentiles, we would call them pagan. He says, for people who have been redeemed, it is illogical for you to live like a pagan. So don't, don't live like them. They're excluded from the life of God. 
Their, their thoughts are futile. Their minds are darkened. Their hearts are callous. Their hearts are hard. And they are greedy for impurity. So they want something that the Bible says they shouldn't want. And they want more of it. He goes on. Verse 20, but that is not how you learned about the Messiah, assuming that you heard about him and were taught by him, because the truth is in Jesus. You took off your former way of life, the old self, that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and you are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. So put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness, in righteousness and purity of the truth. Don't be like this. Take it off. Put the new stuff on. And then he gets into really practical instruction. Since you've put away lying, speak the truth, each one of you, to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Here we go. The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Paul's trying to talk about the difference that our redemption makes And one of the things that he almost holds up as exhibit A is how you do your work. Are you acting like a pagan or are you living like a Christian? He says, you know what good way for me to tell? How do you do your work? Are you doing honest work with your own hands? Are you being a busybody? Do you have enough, not just for your own, but something to share with others that are in need? Yes, that's part of the reason we're doing a a fundraiser lunch today is we, we actually can testify and say that God has not only provided our needs personally, He's more than provided for the needs of our church, and out of the overflow of how God has blessed us, we think we can do something for guys that can't even do enough for themselves. We're doing not only what is good, but we have something that is left over to share with others who are in need. Guys, here's the point. The Bible says how you do your work is really important, and it may testify to the genuineness of your faith in Christ. Boy, that's, that's tough news. That means whether you uh, operate a home-based business like Sarah Hopkins, or whether you are the intergalactic salesperson of the year like Jonathan Brown, salesperson of the cosmos, you know, um, it means if you're a student, how you do your work, all of that stuff testifies. That you may not have connected the dots, but how you do your work actually testifies about what you believe about the gospel. That, that really, truly has to sink in. And I'm going to chase a rabbit trail here for a second um, because I, I, think, I think the contribution that our country has made to the world, um, this is going to sound like um, heresy to some of you, is not our form of government. I, I think you look at the forms of government, there is no other form of government that I want Um, ours is the best that there is. As broke as it is, everyone else is more broke than we are. We're not not for socialism. We're not for communism. We're not for dictatorships. Um, The the kind of democratic expression we have is the best that we probably can do as human beings. But I think the contribution that our world has made, and and I don't hear sociologists talking about it, and the reason they don't talk about it is because it's theological. The thing that has made America great is uh, uh, is our, our... how to say this, our work ethic based upon our faith. There's a, there's a social construct called the Protestant work ethic. Anybody hearing that for the first time? Has anybody heard that before? The Protestant work ethic. Not the Catholic work ethic. Not the American uh, work ethic. Not the, you know, redneck get some grease under your fingernails work ethic. The Protestant work ethic. 
And the Protestant work ethic is this, that your work matters to God because every single one of you have a vocation. The word vocation comes from the Latin vocare, which means to call. Every single one of you have a calling. Now here's what's weird. Immediately, because you've grown up in an evangelical church, when you hear the word calling, you start to think pastor or missionary. And I ain't either one of those, so I must not have a calling. <laughs> There's a Hebrew word for that. Fooey! Every single one of you have a calling. And, and you don't have to be on the payroll of a church to do God's work. Here's, here's the painful truth. If, if, if the extent that our church reaches people is the people that walk through that door, I'm going to have a very limited opportunity to engage with the people of this world. But instead, if we understand that all of us have a calling, whether it's home-based business, sales, espresso, tech support, whatever it is you do, teaching, and we understand that part of our calling is to use the abilities that God has given us out in the world, well, what kind of reach do you think our church will have with the gospel? Much greater. And so here's the challenge. When you understand that every single believer has a calling, not only to be a believer, but to use their gifts and abilities in the marketplace. When you understand that God has gifted you and that the reason you do your job is not for a paycheck, but to honor God, guess what kind of work you do? If you're working for your boss, you'll do enough to please your boss. If you're working for God, not just your boss, you think that might have a teensy, eensy, weensy, little bit of impact on how you go about doing your job? That's the Protestant work ethic. It's been proven. Students that understand their studies as a way for them to honor God, study better. And you know what happens when they study better? They get better grades. You know what happens when they get better grades? They get into better colleges. They get more scholarships. They get better job offers. How you do your work matters. That's the whole point of what he's talking about. And my, my, my little rabbit trail here is, what has made America great is that in previous generations, we understood that our work mattered, not because we were trying to become millionaires, but because we knew that our work mattered to God. And most ultimately, we wanted to honor him with the way that we did our work. We worked hard to glorify God, not just to get stuff for ourselves. And look what God did with our country. Now, not that I think we were ever really truly a Christian country. We may have been a country that was made up more predominantly of Christians. But it's very clear in this passage that we're going to look at, just six short verses, and they are weird. I will tell you on the front end. Uh, Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6 is weird. It's all these proverbs about throwing your bread on the water and um, watching which way the wind blows. I'm like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with this? But it becomes very clear that he's talking about work. Let's, let's look at this. And the challenge for us this morning is not to look at our work the way the world works, looks at work because there are two temptations when it comes to our work. We, uh, we want to stay on the road and there's ditches on either side. And the ditch over here is that we worship our work. Now you've never seen anyone bow down at work at the water cooler and pray to the water cooler or, you know, make sacrifices outside of the boss's office. How do we worship our work? It's the guy that works 80 hours a week and, and forgets his kids' names and whose wife leaves him 
because he's so obsessed with work. It's the God in his life, and he worships it by his time, his effort, and his money. That's, that's one temptation. The other temptation is to worship what I will call idleness. Okay? Now, that's just me being nice. You know what idleness is? Being lazy. Being entitled. And I don't know a single college student that, that does not assume that the day that they graduate, they're going to have a six-figure job offer waiting in the mail for them. Everybody just assumes it's going to happen. Uh, hey, world, I'm graduating in May, so all of you Fortune 500 companies that want me to be your next CEO, I'm 22 and I'm ready. And they don't realize that the people that have gotten to those positions got their how. By working for it. So the Bible's saying how we work in this understanding of, under, of seeing our work, we don't worship it and we don't worship laziness, but we understand that our work is a way for us to worship the God who has given us the abilities, the talents, and the capacities that we have changes everything. So I know what you're going to do tomorrow morning. On Monday morning, if you work, you're going to do the same thing you did last Monday morning. You're going to hit the snooze bar. You're going to get up and make the coffee, you know, blend your smoothie, drink your power drink, whatever it is. Grab a, uh, grab a granola bar, fight traffic, go to work. Busy, 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 busy. Take a lunch. Busy, 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 busy. Hop in the car, commute back home, eat dinner, kiss the wife, play with the kids, do homework, go to bed, and then you go and do the next thing. Same thing. Next day. Next day. Next day. It feels like Groundhog Day. It's the same thing. But when you understand that work is an opportunity for you to express worship to God, it changes everything. You get out of the rat race. So let's talk about uh, Ephesians 11, 1 through 6. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we'll go back and make a couple applications. The Bible says this. Send your bread on the surface of the waters, for after many days you may find it. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full, they will pour out rain on the earth, and whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind... Or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman. So you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not let your hand rest, because you don't know which one will succeed, whether one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. It's very clear that this passage is talking about work. There are four commands. Cast your bread, send your bread. Give a portion, sow your seed, don't let your hands rest. It's very active. You're doing something with bread, you're doing something with portions, the stuff that you own, you're sowing some seed, you're not resting. And in really just a couple of points, he establishes something that's good for us to hear. The first is this. The teacher, Solomon, is encouraging us to boldness in business. Now, I don't want to reduce this to just a, a business text. What is your business? Everything God has for you to do. Meaning, at work, at home, at church, in your community. And he's saying, he's encouraging us to boldness in business. He starts off by this uh, weird comment about sending your bread on the water and someday it will come back to you. I have gone brim fishing with bread. And I know when you take white bread and you throw it on the water, it does not come back to you. It, it sinks. And so, you know, he's not 
Maybe if you had a PETA, there's like different waterproof properties to a PETA. You know, you could play Frisbee with one of those. I, I don't know, maybe a PETA, unleavened bread. Maybe it does something different. But you throw your bread in the water and it becomes spongy and it sinks to the bottom. Most Bible scholars see this as an admonition to maritime commerce. So you, you grow wheat, you grow corn, you grow flour. Um, you can do a couple things with that if you farm. You can eat it yourself and you can sell it locally. But what if there's not a market for it? He says, sometimes you've got to be bold in business and profit in business sometimes requires risk. You can eat the fruit of your produce, but you need to sell some of it and you need to be able to buy new seed and you need to be able to think about next year. And if there's not a market here locally, put it on a boat and ship it somewhere that maybe they don't have wheat and corn and flour. Now, here's the deal. Um, We talk about this all the time. Nothing ventured. How's it go? Nothing gained. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Um, High risk, but high reward. Oh, there's a lot of risk. It's like the stock market. It's a little more volatile, and you can win really big if you bought Bitcoin a couple years ago, or you can not win big. High risk, high reward. We, uh, a bunch of the college students here went to a hockey game. Um, I, had, I had some great car companions that night, too. I found out some stuff. Dylan, oh, my goodness. I'm going to have to tell your mom. Um, it was awesome, you know. It was great. And uh, one of the things that happened at the, uh, the hockey game in Charlotte was um, Charlotte was winning, and Caleb was with me, and he did not understand why they did what they did. So the team is losing 2-0, to zero, and with about five minutes left in the game, they pull the goalie. There is no one guarding the goal. Now, we all know why they're doing it. What are they doing? They're putting an extra man on offense because now they have more offensive people and no defensive people, so the odds are that one of their people on offense will get open, have the chance to score, maybe get the point to tie up the game. That's not what happened. There was a fast break. Charlotte scored another one. It was 3-0, and they lost. And Caleb is just going, why are they not guarding the goal? And, and, and somebody leaned over and said, high risk, high reward. It's true. We talk about this in life. You can hold on to your stuff and, and kind of eke out an existence or you can ship it and all the risks that are involved, the ship might sink. You might run into pirates. Arr. You might get to the port and the guy that's in charge of the port could be shady and like charge you tax that's exorbitant. There's a risk, but oh my goodness, there's potentially a huge return. That's what he's talking about in verse 1. In verse 2, he provides a corrective. So he's saying, be bold, take a risk. But he's saying, make sure that you don't confuse boldness with foolishness. Now, what's the, what's the line between boldness and foolishness? Well, if it turns out good, then you look like a hero. You know, a bold venture, uh, General Custer sure was bold. He just wasn't very wise. Let's take our hundred troops against all of these thousands of Indians. And, um, well... It's not called Custer's last stand for no reason. There's a very fine line between boldness and foolishness. And the truth is you can't gamble on everything because nothing is a sure bet. If if there was a sure bet, we'd all be millionaires, right? If if we knew something that was a sure bet. And so in verse 2, he talks about this whole idea of giving your portion to 7 or to 8. And the point that he's establishing here is that wise business seeks to diversify. Wise business seeks to diversify. This is good for your retirement portfolio. 
and it's also good for your eggs. What do I mean about that? You've heard the phrase, don't put your eggs. Am I the only one that's heard this? Don't put your eggs all in one basket. Yeah, don't put all, thank you. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. And in the same sense, he's saying here, don't put all your goods in one ship. Don't send all your goods to one port. Diversify, send it out. Go, go all out doing that. This is a principle that's found all throughout the scriptures. It's actually found in one of the most beloved parables that Jesus taught, the parable of the talents. You have a master who's going away, and he calls three of his servants, and to one he gives five talents, to another he gives two, and to another he gives one. Now, as the story plays out, the best thing he could have done, retrospectively, is give all of them to the guy that had five, because he doubled them anyways. Or the guy that had two, he doubled his. The guy that had one, you remember what he did? He dug a hole, put it in the ground, didn't do anything with it, didn't even invest it. There was no interest. And so you have this idea of diversifying. The truth is, you don't have to be a farmer to understand risk. There's risk all the time. College students, you know what a risk is? Picking a major. That's why some of you have chosen like 12 of them. You know, you're like, hey, man, I'm just going to, I'm going to diversify my college education, be in school for 20 years. Here's the thing that stinks, man. If you're a history major, I don't know how that uniquely qualifies you to be a barista at Starbucks, but, you know, God bless you. That's a great thing. There are some things that you may go to school for four, five, six, seven years, and when you get out of school, there's not a job in what you have been prepared to do. You know what that's called? Reality. Life. Picking a college major is a risk. Anybody ever bought a house? Any of you ever bought a house that if you knew something about it before you bought it, you wouldn't have bought it? Buying a house is a risk. What do you mean the foundation is crooked? Why didn't they figure this out when they were doing home inspection? Anybody ever traveled overseas? You know, um, you know what happens if you go to Mexico. Don't drink the water. There's a risk involved. We've got some guys preparing to go to India. And in order to go to India, you got to get, Ryan, you have to help me. It was like $500 worth of shots. You got a lot of shots that you need to take. And then the International Mission Board actually recommends a missionary insurance that if you die, they'll bring your body back. Or if you get um, captured and there's some kind of hostage negotiation, they'll take care of it. Or if they need to send in a special forces team to rescue you, for $3.30 a day for the duration of your trip, you have this insurance policy. They're like, Rambo's going to come get you. Now, how many times has that actually happened to somebody? I don't know. It's probably happened to someone. I've been overseas every year for the last 20 years of my life. I've never had anything like that. But it's an insurance program because there is a risk that you might not want to be oper- have your appendix operated on in India. You might want to be at CMC. You might want to get home. There's risk. Um, There's risk in choosing a doctor. I mean, you might love your doctor. You might have been with your doctor for a long time. But what if he's not up on all the latest procedures? What if he's just not studying the way that he did when he was 20 or 30 or 40? But he's 60 and he's been your doctor all this time, but he's not up on all the latest stuff. You might be better served going with a doctor that you don't like, that you don't know, who's more competent, more up than a doctor you've been with for a long time. But there's a risk that's involved. Listen, there's a risk in giving to the poor. We're doing a fundraiser to raise money for the poor. What are they going to do with that money? 
they going to buy liquor? Are they going to buy cigarettes? Are they going to buy lottery tickets? What are they going to do? Don't know. And that brings us to an important thing. Spent all this time, and I think that the emphasis here is definitely on boldness in business. In order to be faithful, I have to say that there's an alternative um, interpretation, but I think they fit together. And that is that all of this stuff in verse 1 and 2 is not so much about business, though there certainly is application there. It's more the idea of extreme generosity and giving. Generosity and giving. Boldness in business, generosity and giving. When he says, send your bread out on the water, and someday it'll come back to you. Listen, your bread is not going to come back to you. What he's talking about when he says, throw your bread on the water, is, is giving food to the poor. When he says, diversify, divide it up between seven or eight, he's saying, let your generosity not just be to one person, spread it all out. And so when there's a risk involved in giving to the poor, um, is, there, is there a chance, and maybe even a good chance, that you're going to give something to somebody in need and they're not going to use it for what you think they're going to use it for? Oh, yeah. There's a good chance that that's going to happen. But if you do it one time and you strike out, you're like, oh, man, I'm not going to do that again. If you do it to 10 people, you might have nine that use the money in a way that you're not real happy with, but that 10th person, it bears fruit, and it keeps growing, and it keeps growing, and it keeps growing, and it, it enables a guy to get out of a desperate situation. And you go, wow, this is awesome. But if you only give it one shot, you may never see the fruit that comes from generosity. But if you diversify and you spread it around, you will more than likely find at least one person that your generosity is used to not just change their life, but to bear fruit. In verses 3 and 4, the teacher goes on to say, be observant, but do not be inactive. Be observant, but do not be inactive. He talks about looking at the clouds. Clouds are full. Looking at the tree, the tree falls. Uh, Looking at the wind, the wind blows. And he's talking about all these kinds uh, kinds of things that are going on that he's telling them, hey, pay attention to nature. Be observant. There are some regularities like rain, wind, and gravity. If you walk in the woods and the tree has fallen over this way, don't show up tomorrow thinking that it fell this way. It's going to stay where it is. There are some constants that you can observe from and learn from. But in verse 4, he provides this, this corrective again. And basically what he says is, don't let your analysis lead to paralysis. Do not let your analysis lead to paralysis. There are some of you that want to study, oh, you got a great opportunity in front of you, and you want to study it for three months before you're going to make a decision. Well, guess what? The house is sold. The opportunity's gone. Someone else has taken the job. You can analyze something so long that you become inactive. You become paralyzed at making a decision. So he's saying, be perceptive. Don't be passive. You may have an opportunity, but if you don't strike fast, He's not saying, just go for it. He's saying, be observant. Here's the deal. Parents, you will always have to encourage your kids not to wait for the perfect timing. Waiting for the perfect timing. What's going to happen if they wait for the perfect timing? They're not going to do anything. They'll never get anything done. Those who never try, never succeed. Like, if you are aiming for nothing, the good news is you will always hit it. Like, you'll be 100%. But you have to step out. Be observant. Watch people. Pay attention to leadership situations. Watch people at the mall, at the supermarket. Read the news. Pay attention to the weather. When you're going out to cut your grass, you're going to look at the sky and go, oh, it looks like it's going to rain. I'm either going to cut the grass really fast or I'm going to wait a couple days. Pay attention. 
but don't do nothing. And this raises a question for us. Why are we not more bold in what we do? Why are we tempted towards passivity? And the issue is this. We are always incapacitated by our ignorance. We are always incapacitated by our ignorance. Now, I, <clears throat> this requires a tremendous amount of humility. Okay, so I'm warning you in advance. I'm about to ask you a humbling question. Is there anything out there that you don't know? And the reason I have to ask is most of us walk through life like we know everything, right? You might be married to or sitting next to a person who knows everything. You just need to ask them, and they will tell you everything that you could possibly ever want to know. They will tell you what you need to do with your life and what you need to do this afternoon, what you need to eat for dinner. They're just people like, they know everything. Four times in this passage, Solomon says, bro, you don't know. You don't know. He says, you need to diversify. You know why? Because you don't know which ship's going to sink. You don't know what disaster is going to come. You don't just need to plant in one field. You need to plant in multiple fields because something may happen to one field. In verse 6, he says, you need to sow in the morning, and, you need to, and that's not stitching. You need to sow seed in the morning and in the evening because you don't know which sowing will reap a benefit. In verse 5, he says, and I love this in verse 5. It's, it's poetic. It's beautiful. <clears throat> he sets up an analogy. Just as you don't know the path of the wind, anybody know where the wind came from? Like, where's the storehouse for the wind? Is there like a big, is there a big place where they keep all the wind and they just ship it out where it needs to go? Where, where did the wind come from? Where's it going? Where's it at right now? We don't know the path of the wind. So you don't know the path of the wind? Or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman. Listen, it's a marvelous thing to have the birds and the bees conversation. Like, God's doing something pretty crazy with all of that. But to talk on a really specific and scientific, method, scientific mentality about how bones, something that's hard, forms in the womb of a mom. It's amazing. There's mystery there, and you can't get away from it. And he says, you know what? It doesn't matter what kind of microscope you have or what kind of medical degree you have. You don't know how life begins. We don't. We know that it is. We can't really explain it. So just as you don't know the wind, just as you don't know how the bones are formed, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. Anybody here got God figured out? Some of you think you do. You're mad at him. Man, why did he allow this to happen so long ago? Oh, you got him figured out, man. He's out for you, and you're going to be out for him. Here's the thing that's really weird about life just not cooperating, world being broken, is God is here saying, at least, at least potentially, ship your grain to other ports. And, and this is the God who's in control of the wind and the waves. While he may not be directly responsible for a ship sinking, he's ultimately in charge, isn't he? I love the story with his disciples. He tells his disciples, hey, go get in the boat, go across, and I'll join you later. What's he send them into? A storm! He knew it. He's sending them there. So the God who is over wind and wave is the God that's over the wind and the gravity that makes the tree fall. He's over the the, the bones that form in the womb of a baby that may not even make it to adulthood. God is still in charge. And we don't understand the mystery of adversity and hardship and how all this stuff works out. Part of it can be explained by by the, 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 the existence of evil and sin and rebellion against God and our world is just broke. We don't understand how God is working through the unpredictableness of life. If the wind, if you can't get that figured out, 
how dare you think that you've got God figured out? Like, work on meteorology first, and then you can get to theology. We don't know. But we do know that God is in charge. Here's, here's a fascinating illustration. The Apostle Paul had a lifelong dream to get to Rome. And he could never get there on his own. God got Paul where Paul wanted to go, where ultimately God wanted him to go. But the process by which God got Paul to his desired destination was by a route most of us would not want to travel. You know how Paul got to Rome? Number one, he was the victim of mob violence that caused him to be arrested and to stand trial before the highest of the government officials. He appeals to Caesar, yes, that Caesar, and gets shipped from the Holy Lands on a boat to Rome, and along the way, there's a huge storm that comes up, and the soldiers say, we're going to kill all the prisoners because we don't want them to escape, and Paul intervenes, but the ship breaks up, and then they make it to an island floating on the cargo of the ship, and they, they, they're, they're sopping wet, and they build a fire, they gather wood, and as Paul is gathering wood, he gets bit by a snake, and people go, man, this guy's certainly got to be cursed because he survived the shipwreck, but God was going to get him by causing him to be bit by a poisonous snake, which he survives, and the end result is, He gets to Rome, but to get to the place where both he and God wanted him to be, God had to put him continually in circumstances where his only option was to completely and totally rely upon God. How does being a victim of mob violence get you to Rome? How does getting arrested get you to Rome? How does being bit by a snake get you to Rome? I don't know. I can't connect those dots. But God is sovereignly in charge even over the disappointments and the hard things in life to get you where you need to be if you will trust him. There's a lot in life we just don't know. But we can't allow that to cripple us. In verse 6, when he talks about sowing your seed, it becomes very clear that the teacher is telling us that despite all of the uncertainties of life, that God expects us to Work hard. He expects us to work hard. He throws out the scenario. Do it in the morning, do it in the night. You don't know which one will work out. One may, both may, neither may. But because you don't know which one, work hard. And we're admonished to work hard, not for self-improvement, not for self-aggrandizement, not to be on the Forbes list of the rich and famous. The Bible's all for private property. Thou shalt not steal. But it's also against greediness. Thou shalt be generous. And so it's not for self-aggrandizement. We don't work for ourselves. That's the way that the world works. We are to work not only for our benefit, but we are to work for the glory of God and for the good of others. It's clear all throughout the scriptures. And I find it fascinating that in verse 6, the metaphor that he uses for our work is sowing your seed. Just an aside, In the Old Testament, every time that phrase, sowing the seed, is used, it's agricultural. In the New Testament, every time, almost every time, the word sowing the seed is used, it's not agricultural. It's evangelism. And the Bible's saying, you need to work hard. And just to be clear, this is an aside, it's not the point of the message, if you are a Christian, you are an evangelist. The question is whether you're a good one or a bad one. Work hard! A couple scripture passages, and then we'll, we'll tie it all up here. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink, rather menial, or whatever you do, do everything 
for the glory of God. Colossians 3.23. Colossians 3.23 says this. Whatever you do, uh, and, and kids, listen to this. Whatever your mom and dad ask you to do, do it enthusiastically. Is something done for the Lord and not for men. For some of you, if there's a way to tattoo this verse on the inside of your eyelids, it'll completely change the way that you go about your work day, your work week. You're not doing it for them. You're doing it for the Lord. Ephesians 4.28, we looked at this earlier. The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with those who are in need. If you looked at your life for just a second, you got anything left over for anybody else? I'm not asking you to keep up with the Joneses and say, well, no, he got a new car, so I got to get a new car. Do you have what you need? And is there margin for you to do something for someone else? That's what that verse is about. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18. I love this. Instruct them, God's people. Instruct God's people to do good. To be rich in good works. But not cold hard cash. To be generous and willing to share. That's all we're asking. Even this afternoon with the little soup and grilled cheese. It's not an expensive meal. It's not a fancy meal. But it's going to enable us to be generous and willing to share. Because here's the deal. Solomon says the world's messed up. It's broke. It is vain. And there are a lot of things in life that you don't know. So, precisely because you don't know what will succeed, work hard. Sow the seed. Sow the seed theologically through sharing the gospel. Sow the seed by working in such a way that you make it really clear you're not working for the man, you're working for the Lord. Changes the craftsmanship of what you do. Changes the motivation. Changes the mentality. Now here's the issue. In a world where we don't know so much, you really want God to tell you the future, don't you? You want to know what tomorrow holds, right? I, I, I do. Is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Do I buy? Do I sell? Do I, do I go here? Do I go there? God might not tell you the future. But he has told you your duty. He's told you your job. Work hard while you wait. Work for him while you wait. Sow the seed while you wait. And that's how we glorify God. We're not saved by our work, to be clear. We are saved by his work, but because of his work, it transforms the way we do our work. If we can get that right, there might be more people that hear the gospel, not just from our lips, but they see it evidenced in the way that we go about our responsibilities. Pray with me, please.